Hey, why not? Let's talk about it. And we're going to talk about the fancy term, making sure I have everything in, in gear here. The fancy word, don't get scared by this, is the word ecclesiology. If you were to go to school and study about the church and some of the practices of the church, the class more than likely would be called ecclesiology. Now, if I told everyone that I was preaching on ecclesiology, they'd go, oh, no. Oh, no, I, I don't know, but that's, that's a big word that's got a few syllables in it, and it sounds really, really boring. But we're going to do our best to make sure it's not boring, because ultimately what the class would be all about is what we've entitled this series, and that is, what kind of house does God want? What kind of church is the Lord looking for? I know that everyone in this room has their preference, and, and today your preference was here. And it might be your preference next week is here. And we're grateful that that may be your preference. But the point I'm trying to make is this, that there are literally hundreds of thousands of churches just in our nation alone. And just because you slap the label church on it doesn't necessarily make it so. You know, you can call a duck uh, a cow, and you can call your pet duck cow. You know, we used to call cows by saying sabas, sabas on the farm. Just the way you say sabasi, and that, I don't know why cows responded to that, but they did. And you could look at the duck and go sabasi, sabasi, but that duck isn't mooing. That duck isn't providing milk. That duck will never make a hamburger. It's a duck. And so it really doesn't matter slapping another label on the thing. It is what it is. And so I want us to just together spend a journey and spend some time talking about what it is that we call this thing church may be in God's eyes. Now, you may say, what's the relevancy of all of this? Why should this be of interest? Well, First of all, I think it has eternal consequences. And I don't know about you, but eternity is still a long time. Now, the American church, and I'm not saying the whole American church, but a lot of the American church, I think is playing a dangerous game with God. We are gambling with eternity, and I think it's time to say a few things. I remember back in the 1990s, the early 1990s, in Kansas City, there was a great inner city squabble between two ministries. In fact, at that time, it was the Kansas City Fellowship and Full Faith Church of Love. Full Faith Church of Love was pastored by a man named Ernie Gruen, and the Kansas City Fellowship was pastored at that time by a young Mike Bickle. It has since become the International House of Prayer. But at that particular time, there was this great movement that was happening in the Kansas City Fellowship dealing with the prophets. Now, I'm not going to get in. You can Google all of this if this is of interest to you. But there was a great movement taking place with regards to prophetic ministry. And a lot of it was on target. God was restoring the prophetic ministry in at least uh, its nascent early uh, measure. But there were a lot of things that were happening that just weren't on target. And some of it was messing people up royally in the Kansas City area. And so Pastor Ernie at Full Faith Church of Love had a heart to somehow correct all of these things. And, and, 
and nobody he thought was listening to him, and it was really messing believers up and messing churches up, and it became, it, it became quite an adversarial, hostile sort of inner-city squabble. Interestingly, uh, my pastor, Pastor Houston Miles, was one of the apostles at that time that was asked to come in to help kind of settle the whole upheaval that took place. And eventually, some of you may know the name of John Wimber. John Wimber eventually stepped in, and he was able to kind of settle it and bring it all to some sense of understanding. But Pastor Ernie, I'll never forget, preached a message that always captured my attention because he entitled the message with these words. He said, do we keep on smiling and say nothing? When you see error or when you see even heresy or twisting or convolution, do we just keep smiling and say nothing? I want to suggest to you that today in America, our default setting to error or even to heresy is that we smile and we say nothing. We don't want to somehow be labeled as an accuser of the brethren. We don't want to be labeled as divisive. We're certainly living in the era where you can't judge anything. You're just being judgy. You don't want to be called judgy. And so we just smile and we just don't say anything. Now, unity and generosity, I think, are virtuous qualities. Nobody should flippantly call out another as a heretic. Or you should rush to just fuss. I think, I think we do have to pause at times in our social media era and understand that an argumentative spirit oftentimes is fruitless and it's futile. There's no virtue in just an argument for an argument's sake. But error and heresy that exists in our non-denominational churches without the slightest addressing has reached the tipping point, in my humble opinion. We smile and we say nothing. Or worse, we smile because we know nothing to challenge it. We may say to ourselves, that doesn't feel right, doesn't seem right, but hey, who am I? You'll remember the story I told you several weeks ago about my cessationist friend here in town who after going to the conference out in California entitled Strange Fire, which was basically a gigantic conference critique on the charismatic movement, had a conversation with me at a coffee shop. And after our conversation, being able sort of to repair the relationship that had fractured because of our theological differences, he looked at me, and you remember the words he said? He said, why can't you all keep your movement accountable? Why can't you all do something with regards to all the error that just gets thrown out here and there and nobody challenges it? And, and hear me when I say this, our movement is not the only movement with error. I could go through a number of denominations right now. I could take, well, I, well I'll take, I could take you through Baptist churches and Methodist churches, and Episcopalian churches. And I could begin to list all sorts of error that the same question could be asked, why can't you keep your circles accountable? Now, I'm not the great heresy detector, and I'm not claiming apostolic authority. 
But I am saying that I have this prophetic thing in me that's being tested and rubbed in these days. I sense the Holy Spirit moving me to speak on this whole subject of house hunting. And I don't know whether it will garner any attention outside of our circle, but I'm going to put it out there, and if God should choose to use it, then it will be there, and I'll let others determine how they handle it and how they think about it. But for you that are here that are in some respects under a charge from me, or at least would look to me as some sort of a spiritual authority or look to me as a pastor, here's what I want to say to you. There's going to come a day, uh, whether you are here or later on, maybe God will move you on, maybe your seasons will change, but some of you, especially some of the younger adults, there may be a day that you're going to have to discern a church, you're going to have to look for a church, you're going to have to determine whether this church is somewhere you want to be, and, and hear me, I've been in this city for 21 years. I've, I've had people, you know, all sorts of people on the roll. There's the old joke. I don't know if you've heard this in Baptist circles, but the joke was somebody asking the pastor, how many are on your roll? And he says, well, it all depends. Those who are rolling in or those who are rolling out. That's the old joke. I've had them roll in and I've had them roll out. I've pastored at times when we've had great, great crowds, hundreds, and I've pastored in seasons, like we're in season right now, where, where our attendances aren't as high maybe as we would even like. But this much I have learned. I have learned that in everyone's journey, times and seasons can change. And there's going to be a moment. There's going to be a moment that you're going to have to discern whether or not what you're in is a church or whether what you are in is something that says it's a church, but it's not mooing, it's quacking. And that might serve you as an eternal help in your spiritual journey. And so I've entitled this message today, Opening the Door to a Problem. I'm going to build one after another after another. And you can always catch up. These will be on YouTube, Facebook Live. It's recorded. We're going to put them in two parts. This message today will be in two parts released Tuesday and Thursday through SoundCloud on the True Disciple podcast site. And so there's all sorts of ways we're going to get this into people's hands. And if some of our people are not here, then we can hand it off to them and we can highly encourage them. You need to catch up and hear what pastor's saying. All right, let's read some interesting passages from 2 Chronicles 29. I want to begin with verse 3. It says this, in the first year of his reign, talking about Hezekiah the king, in the first year of his reign, in the first month, he opened the doors of the house of the Lord. And what did he do? He repaired them. Then he brought in the priests and the Levites and gathered them in the east square and said to them, Hear me, Levites, now sanctify yourselves. Sanctify the house of the Lord of your Lord God of your fathers and carry out the rubbish from the holy place. Do we need to do a Hebrew word study on what rubbish is? Can everyone say trash? Trash. For our fathers have trespassed and done evil in the eyes of the Lord our God. They have forsaken him, have turned their faces away from the dwelling place of the Lord and turned their backs on him. They have also shut up the doors of the vestibule and put out the lamps and have not burned incense or offered burnt offerings in the holy place to the God of Israel. 
Therefore, the wrath of the Lord fell upon Judah and Jerusalem, and he has given them up to trouble, to desolation, and to jeering, as you see with your eyes. For indeed, because of this, our fathers have fallen by the sword, and our sons, our daughters, and our wives are in captivity. This is what he's saying. Literally, he is saying this. He is saying, because the house of the Lord isn't right, everything else in life isn't right. People are in bondage. You're being taunted by the culture. You have trouble. The wrath of the Lord is coming upon the land. And why is this? It's because the house of the Lord isn't right. Now it is in my heart to make a covenant with the Lord God of Israel that his fierce wrath may turn away from us. My sons, do not be negligent now, for the Lord has chosen you to stand before him, to serve him, and that you should minister to him and burn incense. And they gathered their brethren, sanctified themselves, and went according to the commandment of the king at the words of the Lord to what? Cleanse the house of the Lord. Then the priests went into the inner part of the house of the Lord to cleanse it and brought out all the debris that they found in the temple of the Lord to the court of the house of the Lord. And the Levites took it out and carried it to the brook of Kidron. Again, we're opening the door starting today to a problem. Hezekiah was the successor to Ahaz as the king of Judah. Now, Ahaz, I need to speak a little bit about Ahaz, the predecessor to Hezekiah. Ahaz was exceedingly wicked. I don't know, in any of your studies, maybe some Sunday school classes years ago, you remember talking about Ahaz because Ahaz did about everything opposite as the way as it should have been done in the nation of Israel. He swore allegiance to Assyria. In other words, he yoked up with the enemy. He accommodated all these Assyrian idols and gods. He sacrificed, hear this now, uh, Ahaz sacrificed his own children to Moloch. His own children he sacrificed to false gods. He ignored Isaiah who came to rebuke him. And Ahaz ruled with unspeakable compromises. He changed the entire way the temple worshipped. In fact, what he did was he brought in all the Assyrian gods, the Assyrian uh, 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 you know, uh, philosophies, he, he imparted them uh, into, imported them into the temple, and so really the temple of the Lord began to look like an Assyrian pagan temple. He installed foreign altars. He rearranged the furniture. He rearranged all the rituals. He worshiped the stars. Until the day finally came that Hezekiah passed away and God in his mercy uh, excuse me, Ahaz passed away and God in his mercy brought Hezekiah to the forefront. And Hezekiah had a heart and he had a call to reform the house of the Lord. And again, I just want to say it and I'll say it time and time again. Nothing is right in a nation, in a community. Nothing is right on this earth until the house of the Lord is right. That doesn't make sense to us because we think as long as I'm right and as long as maybe my individual house is right, I can get through life. Hear me, God says when my house is right, when God's house is right, that's when you'll begin to see the rippling effects of everything else finding order and finding its place. And so Hezekiah comes to the throne and he opens the door of the temple. Why does he open the door of the temple? Because he wants to shed some light on all the rubbish and the dysfunction 
that's going on in the house of the Lord. He told the priests to carry out the trash. He told them to turn on the lamps, to sanctify yourselves, and to begin to renew the covenant. Now, it's interesting because you may say, well, Pastor Baird, that's the Old Testament, and we don't really look to the Old Testament much anymore. Oh, oh, hold on, thou critic. It's interesting that there are examples of cleansing and repairing the house of the Lord in yon New Testament. Jesus tried twice to cleanse the temple or the house of the Lord. The Apostle John, is it not interesting, being moved by Jesus himself, prophesied to five of the seven churches of Asia in the book of the Revelation that it was time to get your church in order, lest your lampstand be taken away. Paul wrote to the church at Rome to correct its Gnostic errors and doctrine. There was wrong doctrine in the church at Rome, and he's trying to deal with that as he writes to them. Paul wrote two letters to the church at Corinth correcting their practices and their doctrine. You remember the church at Rome? They weren't doing communion right. They weren't doing their love feast correctly. There were so many things out of order. He writes to them in order to cleanse and repair the house of the Lord. Paul writes to Timothy to put leadership in order at Ephesus. Paul writes to Titus in much the same way to correct doctrinal and leadership issues there in Crete. I give you these examples swiftly and quickly simply to underscore the fact that it's a legitimate biblical practice to correct the church, now hear me, by recognized authority. Now, we will get to the issues of authority in the church somewhere through the fall. But that doesn't mean everybody gets to stand up and just take their pot shots at the bride of Christ. Uh, you say, well, if that's the case, why do you get to take a few? Well, number one is I've been ordained to the ministry by recognized, recognized leadership. Number two is I've got 35 years of pastoral ministry under my belt. I've got recognition with regards to all of the giftings and offices that God has put in me. And, and I'm, not simply, I'm not saying that makes me better than anybody. I'm not saying that. I'm just simply saying that there's a recognized or endorsed authority that provides me at least a venue to which I can look others in the eye and be able to say something's out of order and you need to get it back in order. Now, we'll talk about how we might do that as a whole or as a church so we're not out of order so that everybody just gets to be their own you know, personal critic. But the fact of the matter is there is a place in the Bible where recognized authority can come into a situation and they can begin to say there's rubbish in here, we need to open the doors, turn on the light, and let's get the rubbish out. Now, interestingly, he opened the door publicly to address those problems. In fact, it's interesting as you read the Bible, it's done publicly and oftentimes by name. Now, the question I ask myself is this. Now, there is a, an appropriate, merciful way that you step into correction situations. Obviously, the Bible tells us that you should do some things privately. You, do, you, know, you should take others with you. And then before you shout it from the housetops, you've gone through this process. You just don't instantly go to the end game and just shout things from the housetop. There have been processes by which the goodness of God and his mercy to bring people to repentance is demonstrated. And even in this area, there is an appropriate stepping into these things to bring people to the place of repentance. But when you're living in a day and age that has to be at least brought into the equation, 
that you can access any teaching you want via social media. That there are ministers and pastors literally with millions of followers on social media. They can say certain things instantly and if it's error or if it's heresy, it's, it's disseminated to the place that it's almost impossible to reel it back in. In fact, this is what people say in our era. If he's got a million Twitter followers, it can't be wrong. Oh, sweet Jesus. No, that doesn't matter. Why then would you bring it to public light? Why don't we just kind of not say anything and just go about our business? Well, here's the reason why. It's because an appropriate fear needs to come amongst the people of God to prioritize and handle sacred things as holy. Do you understand that there is an account in the book of Acts where two people didn't handle the offering right and it killed them? Why would God kill somebody over an offering? It's because he's underscoring the fact that you cannot just yank around sacred things. You say, well, nobody dies these days. Well, it may be because there's not as much of the presence of God these days. Who's to say? The point is this. That we have to begin, especially, especially in our circles. Our circles, we believe in the present moving of the Lord. We believe in the gifts of the Spirit. We believe in spontaneous, spontaneous uh, speaking, prophetic speaking of the Lord. You know me and, and Pastor Fred and Pastor Brad and, and the numbers of us, numbers of you that are sitting here. We, we, we make a place for the prophetic word. We believe these things. But in our circle, something has gone awry to the place where we're running away from the Scripture when we should be running to the Scripture. And so we're going to begin to put these things in order because ultimately, I don't know about you, I want a house and I want to be in a house that God wants to be in. Wouldn't you? I would think so. So it's time to open the door and repair the house. And whether it's Legacy Church, whether it's the city church, and we believe in a city church, whether it's the American church or the universal church, and we're going to talk about the difference between local church and universal church. But there's a problem, and we can no longer smile and say nothing. So here's where we're going to start. I want to start by talking about the top symptoms that we have as a problem. I'm just using this service. Again, we're walking through this all fall long. The house that God's looking for, he's a house hunter. What are the top symptoms that we have a problem in church life? Can I suggest, number one, is this. There is sexual perversion and anarchy in the American non-denominational evangelical church and nobody really wants to talk about it I remember years ago and again I'm not picking on people but we might as well say it because it's out there I remember years ago in the 80s when we had remember brother Swaggart and Jim Baker and that was really the first time we had such notable people fall and again I'm not here to judge them where they're at I'm told they've entered into repentance, and they're at a good place, and so we bless them and go on. But, but that was the first time, really, in our circles that we began to deal with, what do you do with somebody that has such a notable fall? 
Unfortunately, none of that has stopped because in recent days, I could give you the names of Ted Haggard or Bill Gothard or Bill Hybels or Billy Graham's grandson who has this name, Tulian Tuvigian. He was, he was the one that was the successor to D. James Kennedy down in Coral Gables, Florida. All of these, all of these, all these well-known people are suddenly falling into sexual sin. But let's talk about it even going further than that. Even if we were to acknowledge our friendship with the, with the Catholic Church, would you say that there's a problem when in one state alone, the state of Pennsylvania, that 1,000 kids have been abused by Catholic priests in one state? And I don't think it's being uncharitable to be able to say that may just be the tip of the iceberg. And then to look at their global leader who's more concerned about global warming than the kids in his own parish. Can I just say something is wrong? Something is wrong when you wonder, can I even take my kids to church anymore? We could just go through our own city. If you knew the stories that I know just in our own city, of pastors and, and staff ministers falling, of those who claim eldership, who I will tell you now they will go home. I'm not talking about my elders now. I'm not talking about mine. So Ed and Wally, you're safe. I'm not talking about those guys. But I can go through and I can show you elders that at night they, they, would, they would get sauced and they would get drunk. Elders at night that were in pornography. Elders at night that were practicing perversion and yet keeping their titles. Something, you say, why are you saying this, Kevin? Because something is wrong in America and the American church. And if we don't get this right here, we've got no business looking at a culture saying you need to get your deal right. We don't have our deal right. Secondly, what's the problem? There's doctrinal heresy and error. We're living in a time period where error is disseminated at such a rapid rate because of social media. For instance, there are books. Rob Bell wrote a book where now he tells us there's no hell. And, and, and here's what happens. is He writes a book, he gets famous, and then he can make millions of dollars being on TV, continuing to tell people worldwide there is no hell. Carlton Pearson says everybody's saved. Robert Schuller told us for years, ostensibly there was no depravity. Everybody's good. We just need better self-esteem so all of us will know just how good we really are. There are false grace teachers. I can even mention some of the false grace teachers because some people in this room have their books on their shelf, and you would be offended if I mentioned their name. But they teach a false grace. They teach a grace that allows you to go out and sin. Sin without conscience. And it's false. That's not the Bible. And yet they sell millions. And so we have, ostensibly, everybody saying, you don't have to be obedient anymore. I was reading a thread the other day where the guy said, I don't have to be obedient. You don't have to be obedient to be saved. I said, that's impossible. The only way you can get saved is to obey how to be saved by the Scripture. I mean, are you just clueless? But that's what's out there. I don't, because obedience to them equals works. 
Obedience isn't works. Obedience is the response to the grace of God that is empowering you inside of you in order to live as Christ would have you live. Now, will that grace turn you and help you? And may you stumble and fall? Well, certainly you'll stumble and fall. And you'll never be perfect. But lack of perfection does not mean lack of pursuit. And then finally, number three, did we miss that? Uh-oh, I had a number three down there. You write this one down. It's a fancy word. It's called heterodoxical, and I know you can't even write that one down. Heterodox. It's not orthodox, heterodox. H-E-T-E-R-O-D-O-X-I-C-A-L. Heterodox practices. What's that? You understand orthodox means true. So if you're doing something orthodox, you're doing something true. This is true. Heterodox is a little bit different than unorthodox. Unorthodox is something that obviously is false. Heterodox isn't only that you're doing something that's false, but it means you're doing something that you're passionately trying to challenge orthodoxy. Are you following the difference? Heterodox means I'm not just unorthodox. I am a flaming, passionate promulgator of doing something that sticks it to orthodoxy. That's what was happening at Corinth during communion. It's happening, these heterodoxical practices happen all over. The table of the Lord is open now to where even in our churches, it's untended, it's open. You can have openly homosexual people, openly people in just egregious sin come and pop in the elements and there is no covering there is no challenge to it it's it's and and nobody cares we're just passionate just come heterodoxical practices and we'll get into some of these things later on we will ordain i'm just writing things we will ordain people who have never never been trained they've never been they've never gone through any process they've never had any type of of anything happen in their life and we lay hands on them we ordain them, we hand them a box, and we say, go plant a church. Church in a box. Go do it. Because all you need is, a, you know, kind of a cool, slick band. Get them there. Get them there, you know, cut jeans, their Iron Cross shirts, get the trendy haircut, the eyeglasses, sing three hill songs, you know, say something a little inspirational, and baby, we got a church going on. No, you don't. No, you don't. You're quacking. That may not be a church. Now, hear me. We sang hill song, didn't we, today? So I'm not picking on Hillsong. We sing it. Sent my son there. So I'm not picking on it. I'm just saying, but something isn't quite right here. So we need to understand how there's a problem. And these are some of the symptomatic areas of our problem. And uh, it's interesting because I want to give you some now, some production statistics. This is the introduction. Every sermon series deserves an introduction. So you're saying, why are you preaching this series? Because I'm going to give you some statistics right now. For example, at minimum, 5,000 churches split yearly in America. Now, that's yearly. Minimum. 5,000. Doesn't count all the splinters, all the dysfunction, all the stress. Something's not quite right. 85% of all United States churches are reporting or experiencing decline, according to those who 
begin to gauge those things. Now, I understand it looks as if there may be a couple churches on the horizon, and they may well be, that are experiencing, experiencing great growth. But then the question is, is that what's growing? Is that a church, or is that just kind of a gathering place for a happening? Um, 8,000 to 10,000 churches close yearly. Isn't that crazy? Eight to 10,000 close yearly in America alone. Now, this is interesting. 40% of Americans say they attend church several times a year. According to that demographer, what, what they meant by several times a year was approximately once a month. But then they found out, after doing some other studies, that 50% of the 40% are lying, which is a problem right there. So that means, really, there's only 20% that may be going once a month. 20% may be going once a month. So that means 80% of the American population never goes to church. Welcome to postmodernism. Listen to this, 54% of evangelical Christians, listen, we're not talking about those liberals down the road. We're not talking about that liberal apostate church down the road. We're talking about supposedly Bible-believing, Bible-believing, you know, church-attending, evangelical Christians say, 54%, listen to this, say, I don't have to share my faith. I don't have to do that. 55% of evangelical Christians say, listen to this, this is over half. If I'm a good person, I get to go to heaven. Do you understand that's not Bible? 57% of evangelical Christians would ascribe the three omnis to God's nature. So we're talking right in the halfway mark. And the omnis, you know, God, God is omniscient, omnipresent, and omnipotent. And only about half of us would even ascribe those three omnis to God's nature, which means somewhere or another we don't understand who God is. So 43% of our churches are in deep heresy already. Listen to this. 9% of evangelical Christians attempt, only attempt to live a consistent biblical worldview. Now isn't that interesting? This is, this is just the tip of the iceberg on the American church. And these are all the latest statistics. I found them, all of them represent a 2017 representation. So we're not talking something that was 10, 20 years ago. We're talking something that's incredibly up to date. I don't know how many of you have been watching, but maybe you heard the story of that sweet family, that dear family, a 30-year-old pastor recently killed himself that just swept through social media. And my heart absolutely broke when I read that. And I've read his wife's writings and responses, and that whole situation is just absolutely incredible. But, but I think in some ways it sort of unveils or unmasks a problem. Now, all of us would say when you see something like that, and you know somebody, and all of us probably know somebody who has taken their life, we would say to ourselves, well, yeah, that person probably had some deep challenges. That person probably, maybe they had some wounds or depressions or something going on inside of them that they, were, they just weren't whole. And, it's, and we'd say, how tragic is that? And it is tragic. 
And, and I don't think people understand, and not looking for any sympathy, but I don't think people as a whole understand the natural and spiritual challenges that come with being in the ministry and uh, uh, perhaps being a pastor. And he was pastoring thousands of people. But I'll tell you what most people don't get. Most people don't get that some of those challenges aren't from the devil. Some of those challenges are sitting in the seats in the church. And while I understand, and I've given you mostly the list of pastors and leadership that have fallen saying something's wrong to which we would all shake our head yes. Listen, something's wrong in the seats too. So let's just all own this thing. Everybody gets to own this. Clergy need to own this. The people of God need to own this. There is such a problem and dysfunction in our churches. I'm not, again, I'm not blaming anybody, and who knows what happened to that young man, and we may never know, but I, can, I know enough to know this. I know enough that there are people probably sitting in his church that contributed to his depression. I know enough to know that, because I've been doing this a long time. There were people in that church that were contributing to his woundedness and heartache. And even when he dies and he kills himself, they're still so clueless they won't even connect the dot that they were a part of the problem. And they'll get themselves a new pastor at that church. And that person will keep griping to that next pastor, not knowing that they're the root of some of the problem. I, just, I said I'd say it, didn't I? That doesn't mean you can't say, I can't say anything. No, nobody's saying that. I'm just saying we're dysfunctional. We call ourselves the family of God, and we're just dysfunctional. And so I believe the American church is at the tipping point. The question is, now, how did it happen? Now, I'm going through this slowly. Uh, there's a new statistic, by the way. 90% of all American churches attend under 300 people now. Isn't that interesting? Uh, it used to be, it used to be uh, at 75%. So, see, what's happening is... It, People are gravitating toward a more mega model, which there's nothing necessarily wrong with numbers, so I'm not, I'm not critical of the numbers. But the problem is that there's, there's, there's an evaporation that's taking place because even if that migration is taking place, it's not accounting for all the loss that's going on in this particular area. In other words, in America, the church's trajectory is this way, no matter how many big-name churches you see seemingly spring up all around us. How did this happen? Now, this is the part of the introduction that I'm going to throw some concepts out, and then all through this fall, we're going to come back again, and we're going to talk about this. Now, the reason we're going to talk about this, and I know you're not a room full of preachers or pastors, but you are a room full of God's people, I'm assuming, who need to understand what you need to be looking for when it comes to the house of the Lord. And I'm here the first one to say, just like you'll never find a perfect person, you'll never find the perfect church. But there needs to be a church that's pursuing what it is that God wants it to be. So hear me when I say this. I, I, I could be cutting my own throat here by saying, you know, I'm going to put out all this great stuff, and then someone out there is going to say, well, you don't do that. Well, I don't know. We do that all that well. Well, you're probably right. But here's the difference. I'm pursuing the house that God wants. I'm saying that out loud. I'm the first one to say, well, if we aren't doing it right, then we're going to figure out what we need to do to do it right. And if we're not going to do that, then I need to understand why biblically we may not want to do that. Listen, I'm there. I want what God wants. I'm studying to show myself approved. 
I may not be perfect, and believe me, I'll be the first one to say it out loud. I ain't the perfect pastor, but I'm pursuing, I'm pursuing to be the best I can be. And I've done that, I think, generally all my life. I've tried to do that. But the question is, how did we get here? How did this happen? And I'm just going to put a few things out here. Because Ahaz, you see, Ahaz destroyed the house of the Lord. But he didn't destroy the house of the Lord without the house of the Lord being willing to have it destroyed. It's not as if he just shows up and he says, I'm just going to do all of this. Where were the priests? Where were the leaders? Where were the people of God? Where was somebody saying, Ahaz, you may be evil, but you're not taking the house of the Lord. But it happened. And so that's why we're visiting on this particular subject. And you notice I've done real well. I haven't yelled. Have you noticed that? Usually I'd have hollered two, three times by now. How did this happen? Hear me. We're going to come back and deal with these things. Give me another five minutes or so here. We got here because this is, what, this is a problem. The church or its attendance has become the focus of the mission rather than the conduit of the mission. The focus of the mission rather than the conduit of the mission. Uh, we'll come back and tell this story again, but Robert Schuller was really the first person whoever began to espouse certain church growth theories. Those of you that may know anything about the Crystal Cathedral back in the late 50s when Robert Schuller began that church, it was a Dutch Reformed church. Isn't that amazing? And he started it in a very unique way. People could actually come to church, and it was an old drive-in movie theater, and you could drive in your car, and you could put the old speaker on your window, and Schuller would be speaking up where the screen was up front, and you could literally come to church in your pajamas in your coffee and go to church and, 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 and put it on the window. And he began to learn certain methodologies out of that to attract people to come and attend church. And so what happened was, as the Crystal Cathedral began to grow, people would go and begin to want to study what he was doing. And people such as Bill Hybels would make their pilgrimage out to Orange County and learn about what they were doing there at the Crystal Cathedral, and we in evangelicalism began to assimilate a lot of these church growth methods to where we began to determine that our metric was now going to be, let's get people to church. Because if we can get them to church, then somehow or another they may hear the gospel, and that's not bad. We want to get all kinds of people to church. I'm not saying this is bad. But they might hear the gospel, and because of that, their lives may be changed. But what happened was, in doing that, we began to esteem how many people were showing up, and not how many people were being affected by the gospel. In other words, the mission was how many people can I cram into my building rather than are we conduiting the real mission of what the church is all about. Now understand, the early church was a large church. You get 3,000 filled with the Spirit on one day and then 5,000 families a few days later, you got a church of 20,000 almost instantly. So anybody that says I'm against numbers or that I don't like big churches, that's not true. The church at Ephesus was 25,000 people. So hear me when I say this. Biblically, you can have massive, large churches. Nothing wrong with that. But the point isn't the size of the church. The point is, are you conduiting the mission of the church? And somehow or another, we've switched the metric tags to where we think 
Success hinges on how many people show up where we don't understand that success in God's eyes really is whether you're conduiting the mission. Now, we're going to have to come back to these things, but that's one of the shifts and one of the problems that took place. The second one is this. We have unhitched from the comprehensive authority of the Bible. We've unhitched. In fact, the famous statement that was made in just the last couple of months was by Andy Stanley, who said that, and I'm quoting him, I'm just quoting him, it's out there publicly, he has said, the Old Testament has done more harm to reaching postmodern society, and we need to unhitch from it. And what in the world? I, I mean, if you unhitch from the Old Testament, what are you going to do when the early church quoted from the Old Testament? Or Paul quoted from the Old Testament? You see, the Old Testament is not invalid. The Old Testament has an appropriate place in these New Testament times. And, and basically, it teaches us certain things about templates out of its shadows and, and out of its structures. It teaches us certain things that God is looking for when it comes especially to his house. And we don't need to unhitch from it. We need to hitch back up to it and understand that the Bible touches every sphere of life. It is a a life book for us in every arena of life, but we've unhitched from it. We basically said it's a book of inspiration. It's a book that makes me, if it's, you know, if we take the right passages, it makes me feel better. I kind of get, you know, buoyed up and uh, it makes me shout, makes me happy. Uh, I like to hear the promises, but aside from understanding how this applies in other areas, we've unhitched. It'll show you how to have a good marriage. It'll show you how to raise your kids. It'll show you how to run a church. It'll show you how you ought to run your business. It's interesting what the Bible teaches us. It teaches us every arena of life, but we've unhitched from it. And in doing that, the church has become something I don't think God's ever intended for it to be. Number three is this. We've developed a consumer-driven, buffet-style, self-directed spirituality. There's sort of this unspoken thing that says that in order to accommodate Americans' need for customization, we provide self-directed religion. In fact, it's, it's great if you can give them about 100 options and they can pick two or three. It's interesting how people always pick the two or three that they want, not the two or three that they need. In fact, it's interesting to me how when people are first born again, we allow them to have so many options. Isn't that interesting? As if they know what they're doing. I mean, think about this. When your children are first born, how many options do you really give them? Mostly because they don't know that they have options. Some of, some, if they're young enough, I mean, what are you going to do? I mean, you're going to, oh, here's all my Gerber bottles, and you hold up your baby and say, which one do you want? And maybe they, they, they glance at one. Oh, okay, this one. We don't do that. They need their vegetables. They need their proteins. They need their milk. They need all kinds of things. There are no options here. You eat this. Because if you're feeding your kids, you know, just those frozen Kool-Aid pops out of the freezer, that blue-stained mouth is how they're going to go through life. And, and that sugar isn't going to help them. Are you following me? But we have developed this consumer-driven, buffet-style, self-directed spirituality where, where we'll just let everybody decide on their own what they need. And here's, the, here's what I've learned about the Bible. The Bible talks about a discipling method that has somebody inputting another person's life and looking at them saying, this is really important that you learn this and do this. 
But of course, in America, nobody's going to tell anybody what to do. You know, it's just me and Jesus. <laughs> Not realizing Jesus uses other people to help you. Okay, number four. We have lost the ability to distinguish between cultural Christianity, convenience Christianity, and convictional Christianity. What do I mean by that? There are three different types of Christianity in the earth today. Cultural Christianity is sort of going away because in America we're postmodern now, and so we don't find it in the environment like we used to, Christianity. But cultural Christianity is basically this. I'm not, I'm not Hindu, I'm not Buddhist, and I'm not Muslim. And I'm really not an atheist, so therefore I must be what? By default. But that's not how you become a Christian, by default. But that's kind of the cultural Christianity that all of us sort of, you know, sense and know. People, people kind of know the story. They know a little bit about Jesus. They, they've not really made any commitments, but they know enough to really be infected to the place that if they were asked certain questions, they would say, well, yeah, I'm a Christian too, even though they know absolutely nothing about really the gospel or the scriptures, and they've never really made a personal commitment. It's just cultural. Now, the second one is convenience Christianity. And, and, and convenience Christianity is the Christianity that says, yeah, I'm in this thing. I may have even walked down sometime and made a personal confession, but Christianity to me has to fit within and accommodate within my particular scheduling. In other words, I need it on my terms. And, and this is really a challenging one, convenience Christianity, because this is the one that has lost the whole concept of, hey, drop your nets and come follow. This is the whole one that has dropped the understanding that there may actually be something asked of you in order to follow Jesus. It's convenient. Well, as long as we meet at this time, I'm there. As long as this is convenient, I'll be doing it. If it's not convenient, I'm not there, and God understands, and he's going to, he's, you know, his grace is sufficient, and it's going to overshadow me, and, and it's just all convenient. And for some people, it hadn't been convenient to participate in his body for months and months and months. But that's okay. God's okay with that. Really? You think? We're going to find out before this is over this fall. You're going to find out that God may have a little more to say about this than we thought. And then finally, there's convictional Christianity. Convictional Christianity is, I'm in this. I want to know what he's asking of me. I want to know what the Lord has said. What do I need to pursue? What do I need to do? How do I, how do I, how do I please him? Uh, what is there that I might not understand that I need to put into my life? And, and so we need to understand that in America today, we're not distinguishing between all of these things anymore. It's just this mushy this mushy thing. In fact, this group, convictional Christianity, is the group that everyone looks at nowadays and says, you're just being judgy. You got a standard, so you're judgy. Yeah. So that's, that's where we're at. Until finally, we are, I said this for years, we are functional universalists. We believe everybody goes to heaven. In America, we do. They, all they have to do is make this little tacit, I believe, yeah, I believe in God. Well, you're good to go. And we preach everybody into heaven these days. There's a lady that I know, and I've known her for years in this town. And for years she went to Legacy and, uh, and then has since gone another direction. And her husband would never come to Legacy. And, and they were quite open about it. The reason he doesn't come to Legacy is because, Pastor, he, whenever he comes here, he's feel, he feels guilty. 
And, and you know, as a pastor, you want that moment when you can say, good. Good. That's good. There's such a thing as good guilt. There's bad guilt and good guilt. That's good guilt because he's not born again. And so the Spirit of God is bringing conviction upon him concerning his sins, and he could get rid of that guilt if he would yield to the Holy Spirit. But ran into this woman the other day. Listen to me. And this is what she said. She said, I finally got my husband to go to church. I said, really? That's great. Been there seven years. Well, that's fantastic. You know why he goes? No, tell me. He never feels guilty. You just smile. That's not, that's not a praise report. That's a problem. There's a problem if you don't read this book on occasion and there isn't a twinge of guilt. There's a problem if you come to church and listen to Bishop or myself or whoever's sharing, Pastor Brad, and you don't feel a little guilt, something's wrong. I'm going to knock this out of us. It's good to feel guilty on occasion. Everyone needs to feel guilty enough that maybe you'd even write a bad check. You, that was a joke to kind of leave it, you know. I don't mean that. What I do mean is this, is that, is that if all you're looking for is somewhere that you're appeased and you're already confirmed in all that you think is truth, then you're really not in a church because I guarantee you, you don't already know all this book because I don't know this whole book and I've been reading it for 40 years and I'm learning new things. But we, we can't distinguish between that. We think our neighbor who just sort of is culturally there, it's like that's okay. No, 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 no. We got a problem. And we're going to see if we can't address that. And then lastly, and then I'm actually stopping here. And I, and I understand one of our problems is we watch the clock too, but I'll break that, won't I? A revival of ancient Pelagianism. And what do I mean by that? It's heresy. But this is what is ancient heresies always come back around in the church. And this one has come back around. This is what Pelagius said. I won't bore you with his life. I'll just tell you two things he taught, which were absolute error. Number one was this. He believed that everybody was inherently good. That was his first heresy. Everybody was inherently good. That's not the Bible. We are all fallen. Our heart, the Bible says, above all things, is desperately wicked. Which is why, number two is what he said, was that everybody's free will did not need God's initiation for them to make a choice or for them to make a commitment to the Lord. In other words, Pelagius taught that anytime you want, you can make your commitment to the Lord and uh, God isn't really involved in it in as much as you get to make that choice. And the reason that's heresy is because what that says is it lulls you into the deception of thinking that you can get saved on your terms. That, that you know what, I don't, I don't want to get right with God today. I'll wait till I'm pastor's age. And when I'm pastor's age, then I'll get serious about things, and then I'll, I'll get things right. Well, that's, that's great, I suppose, at one level to think about that. But hear me when I'm saying it. The Bible teaches that no man comes to the Father unless the Spirit draws him. So you can't make a choice for God unless he first is choosing you. And he's reaching you. And he's drawing you. And he says to you, come. God is the one that initiates because we're dead in our trespass and sin. We're clueless in the beginning. We're just absolutely clueless. We think because of how we function as human beings. We think that we awoke one day and we made the decision. And the body, you know, 
the, the bumper sticker that says, you know, I found the Lord or I found Jesus, that's a terrible bumper sticker because Jesus wasn't lost. You were lost and I was lost. He found me. And when he found me, he began to woo me. Like with Brad, just come on, I, I want you, I want you. And Brad may struggle with it. Brad may say, I really don't want to do that. He has, he has a responsibility to respond, but he can't respond to anything unless God's drawing him. You can't make that choice on your own because if God wasn't drawing you, you wouldn't even think about him. That's the bottom line. You would, you'd be clueless. You'd be off somewhere else. You would care less. But if God starts messing with you, then you'll start saying, man, I need to respond. Now hear me when I say this. This is important because there comes a moment that the Bible says you can quench the Holy Spirit, but we don't believe that anymore. We don't believe that anymore. I'll finish. I'm done right now with this. I've lived in my house for one year. And I'm having to, to construct this, this one-year walkthrough paper for the contractor to come back through and deal with all the areas that weren't taken care of when we closed on the house. And it's really a pain. Because you don't want to miss anything that you might need fixed, but at the same time, you also know you can't just pick everything, because if you picked everything, that it'd be 20 pages long. And so you're trying to find those things that are just essential. He's got to do this, because I'm not very good at it, or it's just it's too pricey, or for whatever reason, but he, I've got to make sure that I put down what he needs to know on this piece of paper, because it needs to be fixed. Listen, there may be a million things that we could fix in church life. But I, I, I can't go over a million things, but I can go over a few essential things that we have to begin to see as being essential. This is essential. This is what church does. This is what we are about. This is what I'm buying into. This is what this journey is all about. This isn't my idea. This is God's idea. This is what he says is important. And here's what I believe. If we build that, he will come. Hear me now. If we build that, he will come. Because it'll be a place that he says, I can live there. Amen. Stand with me, will you please?